0: What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Hotshot Wake Up. On today's show, we have an interview with Dr. Robin Verbal, who has prepared a report on the survey that went out to dispatchers around the nation regarding the environmental health of that industry, how our dispatchers are doing. And this ultimately came about when the... New series that was coming out, the old 456 series, didn't include dispatchers in that. And then the surveys were prepared. There were some collaborators as well that helped with all of this. But Dr. Verbal came on to discuss the preliminary findings of this and get into all the sections of this survey. And what was found is quite staggering and will probably shock a lot of folks out there. Now, before we get into it, I work hard on these interviews, and these days I'm finding myself either writing, recording, editing, or interviewing on a daily basis. So if you enjoy what you're hearing, what you're reading, and want to support what we do, please just consider a subscription to the Substack, just $6, and that supports everything we do from firefighter donations, donations to their families, and provides you with all of the podcasts, articles, the archives, workouts, and everything else that we do. So if you do enjoy this and want to support this and make sure that it continues on, especially with these interviews, just please reach out and hit that subscribe button on the Substack. Once again, just $6 helps out and supports everything that we do. So thanks for tuning in. Up next, Dr. Robin Verbal discussing the dispatch survey that went out and we cover all sorts of topics that revolve around both operations and dispatch and what it looks like going into the future with the issues that people are coming up against. I have traveled this year over all the United States, through the Alleghenies, the White Mountains, and the Catskills, the Rockies, and the Bitterroot Mountains, Cascades, the Coast Range, and the Sierra I have traveled, traveled, traveled. I have traveled, traveled, traveled Hello and welcome Dr Verbal thank you for coming on Now, as we explained in the intro there, you have conducted this survey, put out this preliminary report, or I guess a report on the preliminary data that has come out of this survey that was conducted to see the environmental and mental health issues that were happening in the dispatch world. So before we dive into all that, can you give folks kind of your background, where you're coming from? and uh, just kind of your resume, and then we'll get into how you discovered this and started your work.
1: Yeah. Um, so I uh, got interested in fire uh, close to 20 years ago now. I uh, was biology undergraduate, uh, started dating a guy who was doing fire with the Nature Conservancy, and got to go, got to go out on a couple prescribed burns, uh, fell in love with it. So my grad work all focused on fire effects on insects um ended up marrying that guy and um, took my first professorship at texas tech as a fire ecology and management professor and um ended up doing a bunch of firefighter training there so i was uh running the prescribed burning classes and you know a whole portion of my job was making sure we were getting kids certified in nwcg fft2 stuff working with partners and uh that was, that was really fun stuff. A couple of my students went on to be uh, U.S. Forest Service firefighters, and I moved in 2018 up to Missouri University of Science and Technology. And um, last year, one of my former students called me and said, hey, I did this giant survey of operational uh, wildland firefighters. That's Rachel Granberg, one of my co-authors on this. Mm-hmm. And I um, she said, you want to analyze this data? And I said, absolutely. And she got me completely hooked into working on this because the, uh, the disparities in you know, uh, occupational health relative to any other field were just glaring. And when I think about, I've trained these students, I've married these, <laughs> I've married a firefighter. I live and breathe this. My whole wedding party was wild uh, wildland firefighters. We, this is my whole world and my friend group and my family. So it really invested me in a deep sort of way. Yeah, for sure.
0: Hey, I got two questions. What uh state were you in for the Nature Conservancy when you had that connection?
1: Arkansas. Okay,
0: Arkansas. I was dating a gal uh from the nature conservancy in the Carolinas. So there, there's a lot of that, and they're great people and it's a cool community. And I bet your wedding was a fun time if you brought all of them down.
1: Oh yeah, it was a blast. Okay. <laughs> yeah, better blast. <laughs>
0: And then my other question, um, because I think I'm kind of the same way, when someone comes to you and they're like, hey, I got all this data, does that just get you excited?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, and it's when it's data that's so important, too, and so eye-opening. And it makes you feel like, hey, this life that I've been living and maybe the experiences I've been having are not unique to me. It is is just eye-opening and exciting and just energizing to say like hey I can I can take this and make something important with it and then you know dispatch was the next logical place to go after we looked at ops
0: yeah and then how did you get connected in that dispatch world and and start this uh this project or this survey that you that you that's ongoing and and have received a lot of good data out of
1: so uh two of my co-authors on this Roman uh Watson Charlene Rogers are part of the uh, Mark Twain uh M- Missouri Iowa coordinating center which is here at the Mark Twain National Forest and we've been working with them getting a really cool uh sleep study looking at workload and uh sleep and how that can affect error rates we've been getting that study off the ground for a couple of years now what now uh, rates? Uh, error, error, oh, error rates error error rates so, okay Yeah. Yep, yep yep and um so the department of defense funded that about uh six months ago now. And so we've had a lot of fun getting that whole thing launched. Dr. Matt Thimgen's a sleep biologist I work with. He's, uh, he and I've collaborated with the mock really closely in getting uh, that together. So they've become friends and collaborators. So when we started talking, it was just uh, a really easy collaboration with them to get this together. And of course they have great connections and a great network to distribute this out.
0: Very nice. And who's your, who's your, uh, your subject group for that sleep study?
1: Um, so that is right now we have the, uh, the people at the Mark Twain, uh, that are working with us and we've got a couple other dispatch centers that are interested in joining up to, uh, to be some of our other, our, our other trial groups.
0: And I know a lot of folks know that, you know, lack of sleep and function, you know, just basic function is very, very connected. Do you have any sort of preliminary data out of that, uh, showing that these people are sleep deprived and it is affecting the way they operate.
1: So we have some uh, really preliminary s- stuff looking at uh, how linguistically you put things into wildcat. And what we see are these really neat circadian rhythms where your error rate starts to go up around four o'clock, right? When your circadian rhythm uh, would would suggest that your error rate. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool stuff. But we're going to run our first full trial coming up in March. Well, that's cool. Yeah.
0: Sweet, and then so you connected with these two folks who uh, were co-authors. You said, and uh, you started this survey. A- initially, was it well received? Now, I've talked to quite a few dispatchers. Whether it's you know them reaching out to me, myself reaching out to them. There's some that e- earlier this summer, I just bumped to a couple into a couple dispatchers on the beach, and then at a dinner probably a week ago it was, I ran into one. They knew who you were just by, oh, wow. yeah, just by mentioning your name. They're like, oh my gosh, I've heard that name. That uh, She's yeah. doing a survey. I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. So so this is kind of known throughout the, the dispatch world. Um, how was it received uh, first when you proposed this and started to launch this project?
1: I've been really, really honored by how, how supportive everybody in the dispatch community's been. They have been willing to take the survey. They've got me on calls to talk about the survey. Uh, yeah, it's been a really well-received project overall within the dispatch community. They have been more than willing to help, more than willing to distribute, more than willing to provide, and what's really intimate and important data. Um, I couldn't be couldn't be more pleased with how
0: how helpful they've been. Yeah, because it does get into some some personal type questions, right? You're not. You're not asking just a yes or a no, like you're you're diving into, like just some of the things you cover. You cover pay, you cover the physical health aspects, mental health, the work-life balance situation, occupational health trauma that these people go through. And, and for folks who don't know, that's, you know, if you're a wildland firefighter, there may be a, a severe injury or a fatality on your fire, but dispatch will maybe get multiple of those and they're not just dealing with one incident and so that can stack up as well and those things aren't easy to talk about and then you covered recruitment and retention which we all know is a industry-wide problem but with what's going on in the dispatch world and this new job series or not new job series they may have some major problems coming there um when you started this it, what I found interesting is, and what you just said, the dispatchers were open and welcoming to this sort of thing, which I think is fantastic because on the wildland firefighter side, we're kind of like, well, I'm not going to tell you what my feelings are. I'm not going to tell you what's wrong. I'm not going to tell you how, how I'm feeling right now. So it's cool to see that, that that opened up and you were able to get kind of like what you said, some intimate information on all of this stuff. Can you kind of take me through the contents of this this survey and uh, and as we go through I'll, I'll mention things that shocked me and maybe you can talk about some things that that shocked you.
1: Yeah um, so I'll just kind of walk through from the start we started with um, wages and um, benefits and so wages and benefits look exactly like the problems that ops were facing when you know the, the infrastructure bill passed. The new policies, Mm -hmm. we saw exactly the same number of overtime hours being required. um, Needs for affordable childcare, um, healthcare—that was all exactly uh, where ops was last year, and could you know could be depending on how things go. So, mirrored uh, mirrored the same situation there. Uh, Physical health was one that was uh, a really really hard one to look at, I thought, because so many dispatchers, you know, ninety-one percent are coming in with ops experience. And a lot of them are coming out of the field with significant injuries. Um, and so then you're coming into this environment that is really difficult to maybe keep physical health in. You're sitting, you're in an environment that doesn't have a lot of sunlight. Uh, you're not able to get a lot of exercise or maybe time to PT and keep those injuries from getting exacerbated. Yeah. So we saw a lot of eye strain. We saw a lot of back pain. Uh, we saw a lot of like sleep disturbances that were being reported um, and needs for you know, pain management. Uh, seeing a chiropractor using uh, pain management with over-the-counter pain pills, uh, some prescription pain pill use, you know, at about uh, 20% using prescription pain pills at least once a week.
0: Yeah, which is, in my <laughs> opinion, that's yeah. quite a high number. Um, one of the things that stood out to me on the the wages and the pay, like the, some of the questions where I have affordable childcare, I have adequate health care, my benefits – match my risk. And a lot of folks were like, oh, okay, yeah, I I'm getting by this is this is working. But if you go to your bottom questions, which I think were great to add into this, was I rely on details to supplement my pay. and that one was like through the roof. and yeah and it's it's like, oh, okay, yeah, we're getting paid enough, but I have to rely on details, which usually that means hey I'm I'm shotgunning out to Alaska to do a roll out there. And I'm actually from, you know, Idaho or Minnesota. So I'm gonna be gone. And I I rely on that. And that is similar to wildland firefighters. It's exactly like wildland firefighters. Because if you ask if you ask a hotshot, hey, could you survive on base wage without overtime and going out? They would they would tell you no, like barely. So I found that very, very, very interesting. And the physical health aspect, like The folks I know from the wildfire world that have transferred over into dispatch, it is because they have an injury, and then they go into this office setting, and like you said, if it's really busy, they don't have chances for that PT or, or, you know, recovery that's needed unless they do it on their own time, and of course we know there's long hours in these dispatch centers. So, like you said, that just exacerbates itself.
1: Yeah. And some of the comments we got, you know, we're talking about the way that stress levels were then just exacerbating that physical health even more. you know, adding high blood pressure and then um, piling on chronic stress to sleep disturbance and stomach disorders and adding all these things in that just compounded and compounded on top of it. Just really serious, uh, serious problems there. Yeah. Um, From there, our next one was mental health, which I think for me was is just the one that still keeps me up at night. Stressed, worried about you know, worried about people. I don't have identifying information, but there. Are, I always uh, I tell my collaborators if I did, I would be knocking on doors. Yeah. Um, there's. Uh, yeah, the mental health stuff just absolutely breaks my heart and makes me think about ways we can. St- I try to come up with ways we can start to make this better because the rates of depression are 70 you know, percent, the anxiety disorders 60 percent. PTSD screeners are saying 40% and then you know alcohol use 40% but then we get to the one that really like really keeps me up um at risk for suicide we're looking at about 30% and then high risk for suicide this is um, the ones that would say like i am actively in this moment contemplating it yeah uh we're looking at 6% which uh, Patty O'Brien did this work for Ops folks back in 2018, and she found about two two percent for Ops. So we're looking at three times the rate of Ops. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's serious, and it's it's been six percent from day one. It just keeps at six percent. I cannot get that number to budge. Every time I add more people, it just keeps going up. I looked at it today before I got on here, and it is still six percent, even though I'm at 380 people.
0: Yeah. See, that is highly concerning and like you said it's it's compounding upon itself year after year and the, the, i was actually kind of shocked to hear the two percent from the operational side of things because like over beers and talking to buddies of mine if we start getting real and we're like hey have you ever just thought about it like a lot of people will be like well yeah but I, well, you know i wasn't gonna do it but of course i thought about it so i was shocked to hear the two percent And maybe it's just people not you know that passing thought of like ah you know what if you know you just get just stop it all but when you have people who are quite literally the backbone of logistics and operations and making this whole system run and you have six percent of them that are actively considering suicide and like you said the mild to moderate depression nearing 80 percent like that's that should be a massive red flag.
1: Yeah, it, and one of the, one of the things we saw too was you know the, the ability to self-identify. We were using screeners. Um, our screeners were picking up higher rates than self-identification. And can you ex- can was, you
0: explain this? How to self-identify or what that is?
1: Yeah, so um, that's. Somebody says like I'm I'm depressed or I'm seeking treatment for depression versus a screener which with PTSD is asking like do you have things that you actively try not to think about do you have things that you avoid um, avoid thinking about do you have nightmares about things you know the, the symptoms basically we're looking at the symptoms and people are saying yeah I've got all these symptoms but they're not saying oh that's PTSD uh, which you know is, is pretty classic classic firefighter right yeah. you don't want to say I've got it but then you're like well yeah these things do happen yeah. uh, so our rates are, our rates are higher than people are willing to admit, which is
0: is concerning too. I agree. And, and and yeah, because a lot of folks just don't want to say that this is what's going on in their life.
1: Yeah. And, or, or don't even realize it maybe too. That's, that's the hard part is you don't even know what, what you're looking at when you, when you're having these experiences.
0: Yep. And then you, after that, you moved into asking if they had even sought treatment for any of these issues. What did you see there?
1: Yeah, so treatment is way lower than um, than obviously than diagnosis level or than the screeners are catching. And, of course, treatment is low probably because the quality and the access is low, uh, the quality of resources available and the access to resources. We see in the comments like, hey, it's $100 a, an hour and the wait list is six months long. There's no one around here to talk to. Uh, that that is a consistent theme in the comments that we get, that there's just not time access affordability in in seeking care.
0: Yeah. It, when I was working um, on Hotshot crews in Utah, they started, and there was a state program, they started a state program where all you had to do was go to your supervisor and say, hey, I need to talk to someone. And then the state would set something up for you. It was, it was a new program when I was there. I know that it's still going on because I know folks who have used it just this last fire season. And I was talking to a mental health specialist who works with wildland firefighters just yesterday, and she was talking to some representatives and kind of trying to explain this mental health issue that's going on industry-wide. One, they were claiming they had no idea and they didn't know that this was an <laughs> issue, and they said, "Hey, we passed some mental health stuff in the infrastructure bill. Why hasn't that fixed all of this? You know, it should things things should be in place. Exactly. She laughed at them as well and was like, you know there's all sorts of things that get passed that don't work and just don't go into, you know, application as the way they should be. So what I would say to folks out there listening, Utah has a pretty good program where they just set you up. Like if something happens on a fire, there are mental health specialists waiting for you when you get back to the shop. And if you want to go talk to them, you can. But like you said, and in the survey, there's people who have reached out for this. And the biggest complaint is access, cost, and, and time, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think I mean the military. The military not doing a perfect job, obviously, but the military putting in place programs where you come back from a deployment, you've got a week or a month sometimes where you're in a barracks with other folks that have just come back from deployment. And you're being monitored. That that kind of policy may be something that the you know, Forest Service Wildland Fire can start to look at like places where you can actually go and decompress if you're coming back from a traumatic experience. There's there's models out there that could that could start to work. Yeah, and but the investment the and, investment needs to be
0: made exactly. And and at this point in time, I like folks should really start considering looking outside of the box because, like you have said, and I, and everybody who's in the industry knows it's it's compounding upon itself, and year after year, it seems to be getting worse. And there there just doesn't seem to be a viable avenue that consistently works for people who are experiencing all these things.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Okay. So what do we, what do we move on to next? We had, uh, Oh, you moved on and asked if the dispatchers were proud of the work they were doing and uh, if they considered themselves wildland firefighters.
1: Yeah, that was a, that was an important one to me because, you know, this whole, the whole job series thing, um, you know, right now they're not slated to be in the Oh, four, five, six. Uh, and so I wanted to know what they, what they considered themselves. Uh, And yeah, most of them. It was an interesting. It was such an interesting group. Most of them did think of themselves as wildland firefighters, uh, and emergency responders. And when you look at the data, of course, they they have been out in the field. They ninety one percent have been out there in the field doing this, and that makes sense. You have to have ninety days on the line to be an IADP. Uh, They are they are part of the wildland firefighting operation. You can't have the experience, the knowledge, the expertise to be an IADP if you don't have background in wildland fire.
0: Yeah, and it's and on the operational side, when you're out in the field, it's such a relief to know that the people that you're talking to and asking for things that you need understand what you're asking for and have the experience and know you know your lingo and what's going on on that side. Like we had a couple buddies who you know they blew out a knee or one blew out an elbow or shoulder, and they would roll over in a dispatch, and you would you would be happy that they. We're there. You're like, oh hey, John's in dispatch. We'll just ring him up real quick. He'll know what we're doing. So that crossover is there. And like you said, 91% have some sort of operational experience when they do start their dispatching. Yeah.
1: Liz uh, Liz Figgins, another co-author. She's a she's a dispatcher on uh up in the Rockies, Northern Rockies. Yeah. She uh she did in her survey work, she found she actually asked fuels management she asked aviation and she asked uh, she has some ops folks that exact question how important is it to you that your dispatchers have on the ground experience and 78 percent of aviation 60 percent of fuels uh over 60 percent of ops said absolutely they need to have that experience for me to trust them to feel safe out here and you know, when you've got years that over half of the firefighting fatalities are made up of wildland firefighters and wildland fires, like less than 10% of all the firefighters. You need to feel safe. That's safety is a big concern. If you want recruitment and retention in fire in general, not just in dispatch, but in fire, you have to have safety being a priority and having a dispatcher that you can trust really matters for that.
0: Oh, it's huge. The, one of the most concerning things when you're on a wildfire and things are not going the way you want them to is bad communication. And yeah. it's just the worst. Like you can have let's say you have a guy go down or a gal go down. It's like, OK, well, I have an individual who can go stay with them. We'll put them under a tree. And if we need to get them out, we'll get them out. And, you know, well, hey, if I need a ship, I can get a ship. But when you try to call on the radio and the answer is we don't know or the call doesn't go out, it's just any sort of breakdown in communication is like worst case so the the better you can sure that up and the more experienced people you can have on both ends of that communication really like these folks are saying in the survey it's just it's it's easier to trust and it just makes you feel better when you're doing your work that things are going to go okay
1: yeah i always tell uh i always tell people i'm talking to everything that goes through like all the communi- you know, dispatch is like the nexus of communication. So everything gets dispatch flavored on a fire. It's, uh, so if dispatch is unhealthy, if dispatch is not functioning well, then the entire operation will stop functioning well, and that's that's really scary. So if you've got an understaffed or, yeah, uh, you know, a dispatch center that's not got maximal capacity, maximal function, that is going to make the whole thing suffer and the whole thing less safe. That's that's a terrifying thought. It is. It's, it, it's <laughs> a
0: terrifying thought that, you know, half have anxiety, 80% have mild to moderate depression. And like you said, the, this is the nexus of communication in the wildfire world. It's like, oh my gosh, like, are we teetering right now? Like how, how long do we have until this whole thing, this whole system breaks down? And before we move on, I had a question when we were talking about access to mental health care and, and the time allotted and and the cost of it all. What I found interesting from talking to dispatchers is they they do like self therapy inside of their dispatch centers. Like they they rely on each other to vent and talk about their problems and I think that's great. But at the same time that even though you're helping and it feels good to help your peers and I do it every single day, it can add an extra layer of stress because you are you're taking on some energy and some some problems of of people that you care about around you. Did you see that as well, that they mentioned that this is something that happens inside the dispatch centers?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, some of the comments I got had to, exactly that. I was just I was just scrolling up to one to to read it. It was we depend on each other to act as mental health counselors and talk each other off the ledge. As long as all of us aren't on the ledge at the same time, we can do OK. That was the one that just stuck with me as you were saying that. And I saw that theme so many times throughout of, you know, we're here for each other. We take care of each other. Or, you know, I have to stay okay here and then I can go home and break down with each other. It was, uh, it was a really, those were really tough comments to read, uh, the mental health comments, because they were brutally honest. And uh, it was, I was so thankful they were able to share those things, but it was, it was really, really challenging set of comments to read uh the the reports online i would encourage people to go check it out and read them for themselves they're they're eye-opening and enlightening and i'll post the link
0: when this goes up but can you tell folks where to find it
1: um so we're at wildlandfiresurvey.com and then if you go over to the learn more uh link there's a there's a link there to a google drive where it is posted
0: okay awesome so as we scroll down and look at some more of the results here You talk about the work-life balance and and how that affected folks. Um, You know, some of the questions were, my job creates chaos and instability in my personal life. Uh, Unique work schedules impact my choices and lifestyles. Uh, My ability to maintain relationships, Uh, things like that. What did you see come out of that section of it? Obviously, operationally, I think it it mirrors. And uh, can you talk about that for a little bit?
1: Yeah. So this, this section, I, uh, I started writing some of the questions and I thought, I don't know, these might be a little, this might be a little harsh. So I I took it to the dispatchers that I was working with and they're like, Oh no, this is spot on. And they started adding other questions to go with it. Uh, So I thought, wow, this isn't, I'm not too far off on what I was thinking from maybe some personal experience there. Um, (laughs) No, no, It's it's everyone's (laughs) personal experience. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, It was, um, you know, well, dispatch is also. I, was, I was, They're the last ones home. You know, everybody else has to get in uh, before dispatch does. They check the last resource out. So dispatch, the hours can be exceptionally long. And I think people come into dispatch and say, "Oh, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have more work-life balance," yeah. and it's not the case. It, it ends up being almost worse work-life balance sometimes because the anticipation of being I'm right next to home. I'm I, I'm not out two hours away. I'm sitting 20 minutes from home sometimes but I'm still there till 1130 at night waiting on that last resource. And that's, Uh. that's exactly it because I have
0: experienced that, but not as dispatch and it's, it's the worst kind of role there is. So if we get called to a fire and it's a local fire and you know, you work and they want you to go back to station to sleep, you go to the station, but you know, if there's a lot of these stations are in the middle of nowhere. So a lot of people have 45 to an hour and a half commutes, right. To get to work. And so now you're sleeping at the station on the ground. Your vehicle is right next to you. You know, you can be home in 30 minutes. That is so much worse than being in the middle of the wilderness in Nevada somewhere, you know, a thousand miles from home. It's, and so I totally get that you are you're 20 minutes or 30 minutes from being home, where you're getting text messages saying, Hey, are you going to come home? Should I make dinner for you? And you know, no, I'm, I'm sleeping on a cotton dispatch tonight. It's that's rough.
1: Yeah. Yeah. it, it looked like, you know, from, from talking to the folks we talked to and then looking at the comments and, uh, the data we got, it, it was cutting into every section of life. Uh, you had the ability to maintain relationships, the ability to build new relationships or, um, you know, to see family, to see friends, those were all just severely impacted. One of the things I got told when I was working on building this was a lot of times dispatch isn't a bunch of 16s; it's 52 weeks a year from eight to six, hmm. um, and that that can be really challenging too because you, you always you always are on with dispatch but you don't get a lot of those really long, you do get roles and you do get details, but you don't get a lot of those really long days and a short compressed time. You get a lot of longish days over a longer time. Yeah. And so that can really cut into your life all the time versus a lot of your life in a short amount of time.
0: Here's something that I found very interesting. It says wildland fire dispatch divorce rates are higher than the national average, which, hey, that's hard to beat, first off. That's yeah. it's hard to beat. <laughs> And it says the U.S. Census Bureau reports that among um, ever married adults, the number that have been divorced is 33 percent. And in the dispatch respondents, 54 percent said they had been divorced at least one time. seems to be some sort of correlation there.
1: Yeah. uh, Likely, you know, the, the stress that that puts on a family, on a marriage. We saw that in our comments, too. It's just too much a lot of times to to keep it to keep it all together. People don't don't stick around a lot of times when you have a career that has just impacted your life in this sort of severe way.
0: Yeah, a lot of respondents said they felt numb or detached from those around them, and yeah. I understand that because when you when you're in a relationship with someone and you love someone, you don't nec- You want to share with them, but you don't necessarily want to burden them with all of the crap that has been going on over the day. Like, hey, someone died today like that's that's hard to drop on someone when you walk through the door and and they, you know, have some food cooking on the stove. Like you sometimes don't want to put that on them. But again, that builds up and you then the result is you start feeling numb and detached from people because you have you have created this buffer in what you would think is protecting the people that you live with and are in relationships with, but it ends up isolating you and and it ends up causing all sorts of problems.
1: Yeah, it was interesting because people would say, well, I'm with a spouse that doesn't understand because they're not in fire. And then the other one would say, well, I'm with a spouse that's in fire and we can't talk too much about this because it's just triggering for both of us to be talking about these traumas because we both experienced so many different ones. And I thought, gosh, there's just no, there's no win here. You can't, there's you can't find a good outlet. It's tough. And I, the last couple of people
0: I've interviewed, I've, I've talked about what it's like being in a relationship either if you're in a relationship with someone in fire or with someone who's not in fire just because i'm very fascinated with that dynamic because a lot of times you think well if if you're in a relationship with someone that's in fire you can relate better and you know things will go smoothly because we understand where we're at but at the same time there's still that disconnect and things are missed a lot of things become assumed because you assume that they know what's going on because they're in the wildfire world, but really, they just really have no clue what happened in your day. I find that aspect of it very, very interesting.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, I think you can really see that reflected in some of the, in some of the ways that these comments, uh, talk about the strain that they've put on the marriage. And I think also when you've got two people in fire, that constant push and pull of trying to have the marriage, but also the children, uh, it just becomes impossible. A lot of people in uh, in ours had taken dispatch jobs because of children, and then realized, oh, this isn't working any better.
0: Yeah, one of the comments I saw was they took a dispatch job because they were having children, but then they realized that they still weren't raising their children. It's like, oh, yeah, man, that, that that I can see how it's like, yeah, I'll get more time if I'm in dispatch, but if it's busy, you you aren't going to be home to to do those sort of things.
1: Yeah, which is just a such a frustrating thing because you want you want to stay in fire. There's got to be some way to stay in yeah. and both have that have that career that you love. But you know what is it? It's it's not it's not dispatch. It turns out, which I think a lot of people were maybe thinking that was the answer.
0: Yeah. Yep. So after that, we move into the occupational health of it all, talking about uh, how their supervisors were responding to all of these things um, and how you know the health of the workplace was what was found there
1: yeah you know it's an, I always like to I always like what I can tell some positive results here I have to say in contrast to some of the stuff we saw in our operational work last year dispatchers had a lot better relationships with their direct supervisors and even their um, their forest leadership than some of the uh, some of the operational folks our operational folks we saw a lot of like really close-knit crew level positivity but maybe not so much in the upper leadership uh the dispatchers they saw that their supervisors were invested they saw that their supervisors were supporting them especially when it came to training we saw dispatchers getting access to training which is probably a result of the fact that there's not that many of them and that we're short staffed yeah. so we've got training opportunities yeah. which is good though uh, so that that was nice to see uh it it gets a little less less great when we start talking about um inappropriate behavior in the workplace that, um, that's not as well addressed. We, uh, we saw a lot less, less positive experiences there, but I think that's actually down in my next section. So I'll save that.
0: Sure. <laughs> and is this, was this from, uh, I can discuss openly some things that make me uncomfortable. I've experienced implicit bias from my peers, um, yes. th- yeah. things like things like that nature.
1: Yes and then we ask a more thorough set down in the uh, safety section about some of those some of those questions about exactly what uh, what some of those things might look like about inappropriate behavior and how what sections of inappropriate behavior were problematic.
0: Okay. Do you want to cover that now or do you want to go into the staffing uh, section?
1: Yeah, let's let's go ahead and bump down and uh, hit the trauma and safety section. Okay, yeah. it's, it's probably pretty relevant.
0: So So um yeah, so yeah. it was asked Um, I have personally known a wildland firefighter who died of suicide. Um, is this, am I on the right section here? Been responsible for dispatching a severe injury. Um,
1: yes. Yeah.
0: And then, okay. 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 Using drugs, alcohol at work, inappropriate jokes and comments, negative verbal outbursts, sexual assault, sexual harassment. Okay. Yep. I found the section. Let's, let's dive into this.
1: Yeah, so this section, we looked at the different kind negative things that can happen at work. So violent behavior from colleagues, sexual assault from colleagues, sexual harassment, use of drugs and alcohol at work, uh, threatening or hostile physical contact, inappropriate jokes, negative verbal outbursts. And we divided up, have you experienced these from your dispatcher colleagues and from your non-dispatcher colleagues because you know dispatchers are interacting in the dispatch room with people coming in and out on the radio. Mm -hmm. Um, There's lots of opportunities for interaction. And what we found was you're more likely to have these negative interactions with non-dispatcher colleagues uh, than you are with your dispatcher colleagues. And, and And
0: have we drawn why we think that is?
1: So I don't have a good concrete reason dispatchers are, you know, about 50% female. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I would say one possible reason is just the, the gender disparity that you're going to see there. You're going to have more women in dispatch and probably more men, uh, outside of dispatch. So when you say figures like sexual assault figures, that may just be a result of gender.
0: Yeah. Uh, one uh, thing, but- one thing I can relate to is uh use of drug and alcohol at work. Like, yeah, I, I saw that. Um, The inappropriate jokes and physical contact, the inappropriate jokes, um, I can see because it's the difference between non-dispatchers and dispatchers is pretty (laughs) glaring. (laughs) It it really is. It's pretty glaring on that one. Um, I can speak from experience. Uh, We tell inappropriate jokes because we're all depressed and we want to try to laugh. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Um, but I can see 100% uh, people who are not living in the woods and operational where they would be incredibly offensive and uh, clearly inappropriate. Like when we would go into grocery stores and go eat at restaurants, we would just be told, to, "Like, shut up, like, don't say anything," because it's known, right? It's known that that even though it might not be appropriate, that it happens. But the the, the it's clear. That it's there's a disparity in the non dispatchers and dispatchers when we go down this list.
1: when uh, the one that I thought was, I think then the dispatchers told me like, of course, the negative verbal outbursts that that's the one where there's not a disparity yeah, it's there, dead even. Uh, yeah, dispatchers, they're like, of course we're going to get mad. Like everybody yells in the dispatch room occasionally. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that that one, yeah, no no difference there. But uh, the one that really bothers me is you know, the sexual assault one we're seeing over 10 percent of dispatchers having experienced a sexual assault yeah. now i will say some of those do report in there because you know, they 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 didn't experience all these during their dispatching career but it is during their wildland fire career sure uh and so but that's one in ten that's that's a huge number uh yeah it is yeah. So that, that one really, that one concerns me. We see about the same rates though in ops. So it's not too different uh, from the rest of the fire community, but it's still way too high.
0: And, and again, that's, that's culture. That's the, the, you know, 19 men to two women. And I'm not, I'm not excusing for this. I'm just uh, trying to understand why the rates are so high. Yeah. Um, and Yeah. It, it, the numbers don't lie i guess and that's that's that is what it is and it's not good to see
1: yeah and then when you look at the you know the conditions they're working in uh we looked at the injury rates from working in wildland fire almost half had been injured on a fire yeah um and then you know breaks at work that um i think that one i got a lot of comments on that they uh, they put in there yeah i don't get breaks adequately but some days i do like they were i feel like that question i made um I made it sound worse than they wanted me to make it sound. They definitely wanted me to know, like, yeah, some days I don't get breaks, but some days I do. Uh, and then working shifts longer than thirty-six hours, twenty-four hours. People were working long, long shifts in these centers because they're understaffed. Uh, Severely really understaffed. It's incredible. Yeah.
0: They're shutting. They're shutting dispatch centers down. It's. It's. They don't have as. They don't have the amount of people that they need. It's just plain and simple. Yeah
1: yeah two hundred there are 200 people plus understaffed right now at a national level yeah yeah
0: and and the one of the numbers I saw from from Liz's survey, if I remember correctly, it was something like sixty five percent would consider leaving or would leave if not included in the series. Am I off on those numbers? Do I, am I remembering that mm-hmm. correctly?
1: No, you're spot on. Forty percent say I'm I'm walking, I'm definitely out. And another twenty-five percent say um yeah, I'd strongly consider leaving. So about yeah, two-thirds would be likely to leave if they don't get moved into the 0456.
0: Yeah, see, that's you would hope that doesn't happen. And what I do know is they're having a meeting on all this in March. Um and it's ongoing, but that's great news, but at the same time, you know, I'm kind of a critic, but it's the the original deadline was January where they're going to have this figured out and done. And now we're now we're having meetings about it in March. Um, yeah. So, and go ahead.
1: Oh, and it's it's and when you look at what they're trying to put them into the O two five one Two, five, one dispatcher series. It is an insultingly mismatch series that's motor vehicle dispatchers, auto automotive dispatchers, vessel dispatchers, and the like the, the description for that is, you know, office work, clerical work, assigning vehicles, keeping records, and you know, it does not have a trade craft, labor, skills, knowledge requirement at all. And it's just it's an absolute injustice that they would consider that wildland fire dispatching didn't have a paramount knowledge requirement given like if you look at the position description for an iadp if you look at the position descriptions that they that they write in usa jobs if you look at you know us forest service saying on their website here are wildland fire positions dispatches in this i i can't understand how they wouldn't even be able to make their own connections there and that's the question
0: i've had for quite some time now is was this missed was this an oversight Was it someone saying, hey, financially, we can save a lot of money here? I don't know the answer to that, but it seems if it's a miss and an oversight, it seems like a pretty big one because in the industry, obviously, even with the numbers that have been collected, well over half are like, hey, we need wildland dispatchers to have experience. We want people who have operational knowledge in all of this. So if it's just missed, that's a huge oversight if you're just going to leave it out. If it's a financial decision, it's a horrible one, and it's inappropriate, and it's it can be dangerous. If we look down the line, years down the line, if you know this if sixty five percent follow through and say, "Hey, we're not going to be a part of this uh, organization anymore if this is the way we go, you've basically wrecked national dispatch centers. And I don't, I it would be very difficult to recover from all of that.
1: Yeah, I don't know how you, I don't know how you do recover from that or how you even run that season. If you, if you get two thirds of them out, you are completely unable to run most fire operations at the rate of fire we have on a national level during peak fire season. I am, I'm am unsure that we could sustain our operational capacity at that point. I don't, I don't think we could. Yeah. Uh- and, Looking yeah, looking at anyone else that has 90-day fire experience requirements, I'm not sure they left anybody else out. I've been digging and digging to try and find one other position description that got left out besides the IADP, and I cannot find one.
0: I've been told—I personally haven't done my due diligence and dug deeply into this, but there's a lot of people who are uh, dozer operators who claim that they've been left out. I don't know if that is the case, but— Multiple people have told me that that is the case, and again, I haven't, I haven't looked, so I don't know if that's true. But, but just to throw that out there, out of everybody, they're the only other folks besides dispatchers who have reached out and said, "Hey, what's going on with this?" But again, I haven't, I haven't dug and checked, so I, I don't know. One of the things I want to touch on uh, before we move on from this this section is the drug and alcohol use. Uh, I'm pretty clear about it. There's a massive alcohol problem in the wildland fire industry. Um, I'm not a saint. I like a drink here and there. I I like wine. But I found out that there was a major problem and became aware of this. I was on a fire. It was, I don't know, it was in Idaho or Utah or something. But uh, we had our gear dropped off At the top of this little clearing near the ridgeline. And the fire came up and it was gonna burn over all of our gear. People had to move to the safety zone. We sent a squatty down to burn out our gear so the gear wouldn't burn up. The fire came up and over. One of our squatties got cut off. I had to go hike and talk him through the fire so he could rejoin with the group. It was an absolute mess. And uh I was pissed off because I had made comments earlier in the afternoon, like, Hey, we shouldn't put our gear here. Hey, we shouldn't do this. We shouldn't do that. And so I was, I didn't want to express my anger in front of the crew. So I went and sat by myself for a little bit when the shift ended and, uh, someone who was high up operationally came over to me and was like, yo, 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 like, what are you doing over here, man? You can't be over here. You got to go talk to the crew everybody looks up to you. When they see you sitting over here, you know, they start wondering, you know, if, if Tim's pissed off, something's wrong. And, uh, I'm like, all right, cool. I'll rejoin the crew. And then he turns to me and he goes, Hey, do you keep any booze in your bag? And I said, I said, no, no, I don't keep booze in my bag. And he's like, oh man, he's like, you're at a level now where you can just pour some booze in a Gatorade bottle chuck it in your bag, no one will check. And then before you go to bed at night, just take a couple swigs and you'll be feeling good in the morning. And this individual who was high up operationally (laughs) walked off. And I just stood there in silence, looking across the valley, thinking to myself, what the hell did this guy just tell me? There's people out here doing that. There's people drinking at night out here. And that's when I realized this is actually a pretty big problem we got here. If this is the case, if this is what's going on, And that was the, that was the first time my eyes opened to like, okay, there's a lot of, there's a lot of addicts out here and they hide it well, which is what addicts do. Um, And they're still, they're still, you know, functioning. They're still functioning addicts, but it's, it's clear as day that it's an issue. And, uh, again, that again, makes the situation less safe and you know, to your sleep study, drinking alcohol takes away your REM sleep, so you're not getting as rested as you would be. And uh, I just hate to see it; it's not good to see numbers like that on on all of these cases that we we just covered in that section. It's it's not good. All of those numbers need to come down, if possible.
1: Yeah, yeah. We saw it with our dispatchers, we ask about alcohol use and alcohol use. Um, these were off shift, but it was it was high, and it was concerningly high as well. I think. And some of that's probably tempering tempering the effects of the trauma of it, you know. It's of course. Yeah. Yeah. For off, sure. Off
0: shift, everybody's drunk. That's yeah. just the way it is. I mean, it's incredible. You get off shift, everybody goes downtown, you decide what bar you're gonna meet at, the entire crew shows up, and you booze until two AM. It's it's, yeah. it's the way it is.
1: Yeah, the work hard, play hard. Yeah.
0: Exactly. <laughs> So let's move on to recruitment. And as it says in the title, recruitment is the same old story. And (laughs) and it is. And I've been talking to some folks just this week. And, you know, there was the big push last spring, almost a year to date now. I think it was early March when they had the congressional hearings talking about retention, recruitment, and all the supplemental pay that was supposed to go out in the infrastructure bill. And even then they said, hey, recruitment and retention is god-awful. And I've been talking to folks over the course of the last month, let's say, where it sounds like it's getting worse. And, you know, there's forests who are saying, hey, we got three applications and regions who are like, hey, we got 30 applications for a position region wide. And uh, so it's not looking like it's getting better. I have had FMOs reach out to me and just venting really and they're just like why is recruitment and retention not the number one priority and if it is it doesn't seem like it what did you find in the the recruitment section of the survey
1: so exact same thing we saw with operations it's impossible to get when you get hired it's impossible to get Actually hired on in a reasonable amount of time. Um, my partner dealt with this. He uh, got the job offer in November and started in May, which is pretty ridiculous. If you actually have to be the single breadwinner for your family, yeah. you can't wait six months to get a job, um, especially you know with GS five seven. It's not not tenable to wait around that long for something like that. I think
0: if you uh, offered a, if you got offered a job at Wells Fargo. And they're like, "Hey, you can start in six months." <laughs> it's like, "Well, I'm not going to work here. I'm not. I'm not going to work yeah. here." Then,
1: yeah, it's, it's complete. Who, who has that time to wait? Yeah. Uh, and so, it's it, it's difficult enough to figure out how to use USA Jobs. So, once you can get your resume in there, actually get it working, which is in itself a whole problem. Um, the whole hiring process takes forever. It's difficult to uh, difficult to get your start date going. Uh, HR is making mistakes, which you know, has been a persistent problem. I have this great quote from 2011, a congressional hearing uh, where they characterized Albuquerque as problematic and demoralizing for employees. <laughs> well, guess what? 12 years on now. Uh, oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, HR is chronically messing things up. It's uh, it's say- a problem.
0: And here's I, I've talked about this before, but I, I've been kind of giving them the kid gloves because. I've talked to some people in HR throughout my career where I'm like, okay, they got a really shitty job. They they do. It's they, yeah. they talk to angry people all the time, but it is getting worse. And I just made a bunch of posts the other day where we're we're dealing with folks trying to get paid right, and and they're two almost two and a half years now behind on getting wages paid out to them that they've already earned. And, and if you want to talk about ret- ret- Tension and recruitment—that's a horrible yeah. way to do it. But they're now saying, "Hey, I'm—I'm—I've been dealing with these folks for so long that I've discovered that you know all of them are still working from home. And then they started outsourcing <laughs> um, the HR process to bots that they programmed to process <laughs> these things. But the bots are—they—they're screwing it all up because they weren't programmed correctly or whatever it is. Yeah. And it's—it's just. I don't understand why they can't I don't understand why they can't nope. figure it out.
1: I yeah. I don't know how hard it would be to have a dozen secondary fire retirement positions that were Smeeze out at Albuquerque that were actually able to help say, Hey, this person's qualified, let's let's go. Yeah. And yeah, it seems like there are a lot of easy solutions because it's a large workforce, but it's not, you know, it's seventeen thousand, twelve thousand people twelve thousand people or so. It's not an it, unmanageable workforce. We, we should be able to do this right. Yeah. Especially
0: with all the money that's getting thrown at it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm appalled that we, we can't get any of, can't get any of that right. Um, yeah, it's, it's a mess still though. It's, but it's the same mess it's been. I, I haven't seen any changes from last year or frankly from everything I've read from 2011 onward.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that's a crazy quote by the way. Yeah. <laughs> well, and then, um, I'm just scrolling down here for a second. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So retention. Um, what would help? I guess were some of the questions, yeah. right? What would help with retention is is kind of the way you went with this.
1: Yeah. You know, this this always makes me both like angry for y'all and also really happy. So when I ask ops people this question, the number one thing that ops said would help with retention was. Recognition for accomplishments and work that they're doing. And Dispatch said they wanted a positive working environment. And I would tell my collaborators they should want things like better benefits and more money. And I'd just go through this list of things. That's, the t- that that's on the top of my list. <laughs> yeah. But like, and those are near the top for everybody. Yeah. But you know, the number one things were always these like really good, positive intangibles, like positive working environment. We want people to care about what we're doing. We want strong leadership. Those make it into those top five. And I think that's a really encouraging thing that when I see those in the data, this isn't a bunch of people griping. This is a bunch of people saying, "Here's what really matters to me. Here's what I want for change." And you know, this is not just my my shit list. Yeah, this is, and they're, they're, all, my positive. Real, they're all positive. They're all
0: positive things that they want.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I see this as a really encouraging thing. Yeah. They want more pay. Yeah. They want more accurate locality pay. They want better benefits, but they also want a positive place to work and they want strong leadership.
0: And, you know, the question that I have is, you know, what, what is the straw that breaks the camel's back? And ultimately it does sound like it's going to be this series if it goes through or not. And even if the series does go through, you know, there's still a laundry list of things that that like what you just said. We're at the top of these dispatchers' list. You know, positive reinforcement, positive work environment, um, you know, help and reassurance from my supervisors. N- none of those things are going to be fixed or addressed in this series, right? You know, so the, exactly. the benefits would be would be fixed. It's still being debated if the wages would be fixed. Um, there was a letter sent out by some congressman and a congresswoman on February 2nd where they asked that question to the agencies. Hey, are, are, what about wages? Are those things going to be increased in, in all of your discussions? So if it goes through, how do we take care of the things that can't be addressed in, in that? You know, Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: So I am still really trying to get my head around exactly what the next steps are right now. If you if you approach it from my my science world, will be the second study ever published on dispatchers. There was a Charles Palmer put a study out in 2014, um, looking at what stresses dispatchers, and that's it. That's the entirety of wildland fire dispatch research. Yeah. So we don't know hardly anything in terms of what we can what's going on in terms of the world that they exist in scientifically yet. Um, I think in terms of just immediate actions, genuine, actual mental health work, not just, you know, lip service, um, work-life balance that actually fits. So that's cost of living wages and that's making enough capacity at those centers that you can actually have balance where you can reliably take time off. You can predict that you're going to have a schedule that you can actually manage. Um, I think those things are going to really make a big difference in the short term, but those take, those take effort and money and you know, capacity building and capacity building is something that doesn't happen overnight either.
0: Well, no, it doesn't happen overnight. And, and yeah. they've said it's, it's, uh, just getting more people into the workforce was said, in congressional testimony, their number one priority. And it, it seems to be an uphill battle still. And that's putting it lightly. I could I, yeah. I could say it in a much harsher, more direct way, but I'm not going to at this point in time. <laughs> um, when they sit in front of Congress again next month, because they have to be in front of Congress again next month, um, when they have to, you know, justify their budgets that are coming in. Thankfully, there are some representatives that have reached out to individuals that I speak to on basically a weekly basis and have said, hey, what's going on with all this stuff? Have we made any progress with it? And they say, hey, no, there's still hundreds, if not you know, a 1,000-plus firefighters who still haven't received their pay from 2021, and they are blown away, and they say, how is that even possible? We're, we are being told that everyone got paid, which is very concerning that somewhere up the chain there's a discrepancy of hey we know people aren't getting paid to now we're in congress and they're being told yes the program was rolled out correctly and everything's being being run just fine that's concerning but these representatives are asking people who are closely involved in the wildfire world can you provide us questions to ask them next month so i'm i'm hopeful that you know they'll get grilled again and of course it was a big media splash when they did get grilled But then, you know, you have to find out what the results are from it all. And and like we said before, the timeline for this series was, hey, we'll have it all done by January and now we're in February and hey, we're having a meeting about it in March. I've also been told that, you know, this infrastructure bill money was supposed to run out in September of this year, but an an individual who's closely related to it all was told that they're now estimating that the money's going to run out in August and I, my response was, well, next month it'll be July as the, as the cynic that I am, but it just seems to be going that way. And I know I'm, yeah. I'm kind of on a rambling rant here, but yeah, you have to see some sort of progress in action. Otherwise the workforce is going to lose trust and be more discouraged going forward. And it's just with the recruitment and retention problems already having, that's just a disaster waiting to happen.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, you you do you want to believe they're trying to do the right thing, but when you see this constant, what feels like obfuscation and unwillingness to communicate with the people who are doing work, the people who are boots on the ground, you start to wonder what what's going on, and it doesn't it doesn't look great. Yeah, and and
0: you know, I have theories, and these theories are things that I just you know, explore with friends sometimes. And, and I'm not going to, you know, come out publicly and be like, this is what's going on. But there are a lot of people who are very highly qualified individuals who run large programs who I talk to who are like, man, this just doesn't, I just don't get it. It doesn't make sense. And I'll be the first one to say, there are people who are trying hard to make this work. Uh, you as an example, you are trying hard to bring light to all this and and make positive change. And there are people within the industry and within these agencies who are doing the same thing. But somewhere somewhere along the line, there is a brick wall or or you know negligence or just stupidity. It's I don't know which one it is, but it's clear that there's a massive crack that a lot of things are falling through.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's duplication effort. I mean, there's a current survey going around that is duplicating effort that we put in last year. Uh, and they, you know, they didn't use our work at all, but they're duplicating effort that could have been saved if they would have just taken the work we sent them and used it. It's, yeah, it's really striking. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm blown away by the amount of, yeah, the amount of just not clear mission that is, that is at play right now
0: yeah, it's really too bad to see and and it's it may be just like hey, this is the way it's always been. we'll get through it or you know, I had to deal with that when I was doing that so they can deal with it or you know, I'm three years from retirement so I don't want all this pie on my face trying to figure this whole thing out and and I'm not saying it's just one of those things like it can it can be all of those things um but at what point? Do you actually get some sort of congressional action, which I think is ultimately what it's going to take? Otherwise, you need some sort of leadership change at the top. And I'm not blaming the leadership at the top. What I'm saying is sometimes when you change leadership at the top, it sparks something and people are like, oh, gosh, okay, we got to figure this out because people are people are losing their positions over this stuff. And, you know, I'm not saying I have the answer for that or what it should be, but it's not being taken seriously enough and and what I would hate is for you know Congress to take it seriously when half of dispatch quits and then we hit a PL5 midsummer and the entire dispatch system falls apart, which then carries down operationally and what's going on on the ground and then be like, oh wow, we have a national emergency. We should probably try to figure
1: this out. <laughs> Exactly. I don't want it to have to be a public, public incident, a big, a, a big catastrophe and, you know, a, a blow up to make a change. I would rather see a change on the front end before we have a something awful go wrong. Yeah.
0: Hey, before we yeah. go, let's end on a positive note. Um, why? The last part was you were asking folks why they were dispatchers. Why are they wildland fire dispatchers? And yeah, and, I, and, <laughs> yeah, can you talk about some of that?
1: Yeah, that always that that is my favorite section. Um, the that that one just always makes you feel good. People do dispatch because they love fire, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, they're passionate about their work. They you know they had to step away from primary for another reason, but they wanted to be in fire. They they couldn't imagine not being in fire, so this was their way to stay in. Um, that you know they like they like the job. I, I think that's my favorite, even though, even though all this other stuff sucks, they still like the job and they want to be here and they want to do good work. Yeah. Uh, and it matters. Yeah. It's,
0: yeah. And, the, and again, if we're talking about mirroring or overlap of, of where the similarities are in operations, it's the same way people are like, yeah. people are like, man, I know I'm kind of getting screwed here, but I love my work. I love doing what I do and they're passionate about it. And, uh, you know, and it shows it, the way they talk about what they do.
1: Yeah, I I think that's one of the things that I love the most about working with wildland firefighters and wildland fire in general. It's it is a job, but it's an identity, and that just maybe maybe it's not one hundred percent healthy, but it is it is something that truly inspires you when you're working around people that love what they do and know that it matters that much.
0: Hundred percent. Well, hey. Yeah. One more time can you tell folks where they can and find this and again I'll post it with with the uh the podcast as well but let people know where they can find this and is it the same place where this sleep study is going to be
1: uh, so yeah we'll we'll be posting results there as well and also the operational fire study is in the same same drive if you want to check out the results from 2022 cool. it's uh wildlandfiresurvey.com And uh, go to the Learn More tab and check out the Google Drive there.
0: Well, hey, Dr. Robin Verbal, thanks for coming on. I appreciate you taking the time and uh, the conversation that we had. It was great.
1: Oh, thanks so much for having me.